the number one thing I needed to do is always stay focused on the customer, but evolve as she evolves. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive, Amparity, and Element. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 85, and today's guest is Cheryl Clark. Cheryl is the CEO of Boston Proper, a digitally-focused women's online apparel and accessory brand. Her career has been extensive with stops at the Bloomingdale's training program, then the Gap and Old Navy, and then to Boston Proper. She'll explain the three different periods within Boston Proper and how with each change in owners, she's been able to continue to build her own set of experiences and help the brand prosper. She speaks about the role of private equity and strategic owners in a business and how this once catalog company has now turned the main spend driver of the brand to be on digital tactics. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Cheryl Clark. Cheryl is a dynamic leader serving as the president and CEO of Boston Proper, where she drives the company's profitable growth and oversees all facets of realizing the brand's vision. With her extensive experience and dedication, Cheryl has significantly impacted the brand and the women it serves. In her role, Cheryl is responsible for shaping the brand's vision and strategy, leading merchandising, design, creative, and marketing efforts, while partnering to oversee planning, supply chain operations, and IT. She's focused on delivering a seamless omni-channel experience, and I want to come back to that omni-channel piece that nurtures meaningful and authentic connections with customers. She's also held management roles at Gap and Old Navy. Cheryl, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to be here, and thank you so much, Mark, for inviting me to be part of the Marketing Playbook. Well, thanks. It's great. And, uh, you know, we are recording here in the middle of October and much like everybody in retail, I'm gathering you're getting ready for holiday. We definitely are getting ready for holiday. And that probably started a few months ago, if I had to guess. It did. The final pieces for us right now are actually looking at the promotional strategy between Thanksgiving and Christmas and, you know, understanding Hanukkah and all the other holidays like Green Monday and Cyber Monday and free ship days and last time to ship. And so we're trying to balance it all out. I feel excited about the upcoming holiday because we've got inventory in the right spot. I feel good about the assortment mix that we're providing Lucy. And as you and I know, because we've had a couple of discussions, Lucy is the ideal Boston proper customer that we use as a, our muse and the design intent when we build the collections and tell our stories. And we're excited. I think Lisa's going to find a lot of great strategic deals with us, as well as some great product for all of her holiday occasions. 
Uh, we're going to come back to Boston proper and and all things Boston proper, but uh, I wanted to explore a little bit of your background. You know, coming from a guy who's you know been at a lot of different companies and a lot of different brands um, over my career, um, while I was you know prepping for this, you've been very uh, limited, and I don't mean limited in a negative way by any stretch. Limited in the number of companies that you've worked with. You've stayed uh, your ground in a lot of different businesses. So you you started pretty early on in a, in a training program at Bloomingdale's. How did you get into that? So I always wanted to be uh, in, in clothing. Like I didn't really know what it meant. Again, I'm, we're ta I'm taking you back to like the early 80s when I was in high school, right? So being a buyer wasn't as well known. There was no Devil Wears Prada to kind of understand the industry and some of the other things that, that have helped educate people. Um, like, like you can watch runway shows now live all the time, right? Like none of that was in existence back then. So telling my first generation Italian Catholic family that I wasn't going to go to law school and I wasn't going to be a doctor and I wanted to be a merchant. Um, and at the time we called them buyers. My dad was like, there's no way that's happening. Like, it's just not even an option. So I, I think that was one of my first learnings was the art of negotiation to get my dad to allow me through this 3-1 program that I did with State University of New York at Oneonta. I went there for three years, got my bachelor's of science in business economics, which allowed my dad to feel I had a fallback career. <laughs> and then I went and spent my last year in New York City at FIT and got my associate's degree in fashion merchandising. And that combination of the two was a unique program that allowed me to actually get my parental approval in studying fashion. You know, it's funny because, you know, when I start the show, usually I talk about people's first story, you know, their upbringing, how it potentially impacted what they went into. You've already touched on your parents, uh, you know, a few times. So were they, you know, involved in the direction you chose? My dad always had a, a sense of style and I will always credit him for that, that sense of style. He always was put together, had the whole look with the pocket squares and the shoes and the belt, like the whole thing. And so I, I look at that as like, like that had to be passed down to me in my jeans and they didn't really understand it. Right. Like I was the girl who basically they would send me back upstairs to change multiple times for family events and holidays. I was also the girl that went out of the house in the morning with a tote bag that like my parents thought was full of books. And it was really with the outfit I was going to change into the second I got to school in the bathroom. And luckily I didn't have to change back because my mom was a working mom. And so I didn't have to change back to get home. I could sneak home in my cool girl outfit. Um, but I also remember like being in, in elementary school, I was in a Catholic school and getting called into the principal's office multiple times because my skirt was too short. <laughs> okay. Well, that that's telling us a lot. That's painting the picture of Cheryl Clark. The fashion business is tough. Generally speaking, it's tough. Consumers are fickle. How have you kind of navigated that throughout your career? I kind of look at my career in like the three segments, right? The Bloomingdale's entry segment, my, my time at The Gap, and then Actually, my time at, at Boston Proper, I'm breaking that into three segments too, but it really is one big segment. And I think what I've learned is the number one thing I needed to do is always stay focused on the customer, but evolve as she evolves. And I think that's probably one of the biggest learnings, especially, you know, coming to Boston Proper and the and the journey we've been on from being a catalog company to being a digital company. I live for it, right? So it, you have to like this, right? Every day you're judged. 
every hour there's a flash that comes out that you're looking at and you're judging yourself. And on the flip side, every day I come to work and I have different new problems. So when I'm interviewing people and I interview every single person who comes into Boston proper, I don't care what level you come in at, you meet with me before you get a job offer because we have a certain culture and you have to be somebody that that likes that. Even in finance, if you like a very rope financial job, it's not here because our sales are up and down, things happen, we try to do different things. So you've got to have this sense about you, I think, in order to be successful in this industry. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I'm usually more organized in my podcast, but you bring up so many good things as we're talking. I'm going to wind up jumping around. Uh, the point about you know always judging, you know, you're you're judging yourself all the time. How do you resist, you know, the whack-a-mole, um, so to speak, of of retail? Of we didn't perform yesterday the way we wanted, so now we react, and then we see what happens. How do you not overreact? It's a definite balance. And I will say working for private equity has shown me that you actually can stay more focused on your strategy when you're not, you don't get conflicting messages from Wall Street, from your board, from the customer, from your sales. So I do feel like over the course of time, we've built something so we're not so reactionary. And part of what we're trying to learn even now with everything going on in the macro environment and balancing it are we on the path long-term? So I might not hit my day-to-day, but am I hitting my week? Am I hitting my month? Are we delivering the quarter? So I feel like I've been on a journey the past 18 months to pull back a little and not be immediately reactionary as long as we feel like we've got a strategy and we can actually still hit some of the key time periods versus the day-to-day. Because the day-to-day can drive you absolutely nuts. Yes, um, I probably I'm probably a little nuts because of all the day to day that I've had to manage over my my career. So maybe we would just go all the way back. So you were in the Bloomingdale's uh, training program. Do those programs still kind of exist today? They do, but I don't think that they are the way they used to be. And and an interesting thing was back in the day when I went, it was really only department stores that that were doing it. And what what the the kind of the tale was was. You went into department stores, you learned from department stores, and then specialties basically took you because you were trained. And the specialty stores didn't necessarily have to have a a formalized program because they were getting people who already were kind of trained by a department store. That changed during my time at The Gap, and we actually developed a a program, an executive training program at The Gap, where we would then go and recruit people. Um, But, you know, what was super interesting about my Bloomingdale's experience and again, like one of the things I, I, I has stuck with me forever is I went there, right? I, I, my last year of college was at FIT. I went back, got my graduate, graduated, but I had my job. So FIT was amazing at making those connections. So I graduated in May and September 23rd, I was starting at Bloomingdale's in the executive training program. So I had to spend my whole summer working so I can, you know, like live. I I was so anxious and and excited about like my fashion career was finally coming to life. All the pieces are coming together. And uh, to this day, I remember sitting in this room with 50 other people, right? And the Bloomingdale's executive training program of 1987 and getting with a folded piece of paper, our assignments. And my assignment was the Bloomingdale's bakery. And I was beyond devastated, right? Like uh, here I am thinking like I'm on my, my fashionista career path and I'm going to the bakery. And my background has always been in the food service industry. I was never like a person who worked in stores because I liked making money. And you make a lot of money being a bartender or a server. 
So I was like, "Why I can't even get rid of it after I did, I paid all my dues. I'm, I'm back in the bakery. And I was convinced that my dad was going to basically say to me, you know, Cheryl, like we told you, like this is, this was his moment, right? His, I told you so moment, which didn't come to fruition. And again, was so meaningful in my career that at that moment, he said to me, you're going to be the best bakery buyer they've ever had. You go in there and you kill them. You knock them dead. You do you, do you Cheryl, and you will be successful. And it spun it for me in a very positive upward direction versus me kind of going the next day, being a little like not so happy that I'm, I'm relegated to the bakery. I grew up in Brooklyn. My mother's parents uh, both worked in Manhattan and they loved being in Manhattan, even though they lived in Brooklyn. And they would routinely take me with them into the city to go to Bloomingdale's. And one of my favorite things to do was to go to the bakery in Bloomingdale's. So as you're talking, I can almost smell the right? bakery, you know, in Bloomingdale's. Yeah, that's that's great. That's a nice, uh, nice moment. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired, with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. If you're an e-commerce business that needs help scaling your ads profitably, check them out at element.com, spelled E-L-U-M-Y-N-T.com. You, you leave the bakery and now you're headed to Gap and you spend a long career at Gap and Old, Old Navy. So first, one of the questions, you know, is around this, this change from, you know, being on the men's side of product to the women's side and going from one to the other. Is that a tough thing to do? Well, the, the interesting backstory there was I always considered myself a fashion merchant. So when I was in Bloomingdale's and, and went on the rest of my journey there for five, five and a half more years, I was in women's. So I was this, I was a women's merchant. I went to the Gap as a women's merchant. I was my first job at the Gap was a, a the merchant for women's knits. And then I went to being a denim merchant and women's, et cetera. And at the time, I, so I was there for a, probably like four or five years. There was a VP job open in men's and I turned it down. They came to me. We talked about it. You know, my boss at the time was Lisa Salamone, who I love, was an amazing mentor. She's like, this is a great opportunity. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing men's. I'm a women's merchant. And so it kind of created this weird internal political thing at the Gap where I got called up to the, the, the principal's office, right, the, the president. And it was Bob Fisher at the time. And we were, we were chatting back and forth about the opportunity. And he's like, so you just want to be a women's merchant the rest of your life, right, your career. Like, this is like what you aspire to do. And, and he was a little sarcastic about it. And I was like, no way, I'm going to run a company. I'm going to do this. And he's like, well, all the experience you're going to have then is going to limit that because you just want to stay in women's. He's like, you don't want to understand your customer enough to when you're not the end user of the product. How do you get around that? How do you understand the other triggers for purchase? How do you understand the other the other attributes that that make product right for a customer that's not you? And I thought about it. And obviously, I, I took the job immediately because I was like, no, I want to learn all of that. I want to be that type of leader. I don't want to just be singular in what my focus is. And, and the story around it is it helped me later on when I was at Old Navy and an opportunity came up to become the senior vice president of adults. 
Had I not had that men's experience at the Gap, I don't think I would have gotten the job or I wouldn't have been as successful in it as I was because I took that opportunity of men's. What men's did for me, I think, was two things. One, build my leadership skills with a team of people that were guys, basically, and, and trying to understand how you motivate different people as you're going on in your career and building your leadership skills. And secondly, I learned how to create and, and buy product that I wasn't the end user for or women weren't the end user for. And it was it was a great experience. And I think everybody that I worked with at that time as a merchant, the merchants who work with me, I'm in touch with all of these guys today. They're like amazing people who have gone on in their career and done great things. And they taught me a lot. Yeah. And that's interesting because as you were, I was going to almost interrupt you. And when you said that you didn't take the job, I was going to ask you, geez, you know, did you fear that you had turned them down and they would never come back to you for another role with some seniority and growth? Um, so it sounds like it was a good thing that you took it. Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, also, you know, about your schooling and and the component of business economics. Your dad was happy that you had a fallback role. You know, we talk about fashion and, you know, it's design and it's picking pretty products and and all, but there's a math behind retail and fashion. Talk about that. When you worked at The Gap, you were always recruited, right? There was always people looking for people with The Gap because of the experience and all of that. And, you know, The Gap was pretty smart because you had nice golden handcuffs on at the time. Um, but it, it was a balance. But I was always credited as someone that was equally balanced in both fashion, taste, aesthetic, call it, product, and business. I know how to make money. I know how important key items are. I know from Old Navy what an item of the week needs to do and how you've got to make sure you're picking the right one, right? When I was at The Gap and even in men's, that first table, it had to produce. Like So I've always had that great balance. And I speak about it a lot because you never really get a full team as a merchant lead of people who have balance. You have some that are stronger on the product part, some that are stronger on the, the business part. So getting that balance to me was really important. But I feel like there's an evolution happening right now as I look at the merchant organization because the customer is different, the KPIs are different, the whole digital aspect of it and understanding product conversion on your website versus just overall sales of a product. Like, And again, this evolution of a merchant having an equal balance or a very strong balance in both understanding product and business I think is the most important thing you can have. And then understanding in that business part, it's going to change as the world and technology changes. And you've got to stay up on that. You know, when I went to Boston Proper, I had no catalog or internet experience. And I learned it very quickly. And now I'm learning very quickly how to become a digital entrepreneur. Yeah, there's uh, so much I want to tackle on the um, Boston Proper <laughs> and we'll come to it. But before we get there, Cheryl, when you got to uh, Old Navy, where were they kind of in the uh, the life cycle of, of that business? So when I got to Old Navy, I was the vice president of women. So very excited. I got to go back into my women's apparel background and use that to help me in my career there. But we had less than 100 stores. It was a very small organization. Jenny Ming was the, the CEO at the time. And Maureen Chukai was my boss. She was running the adult portion of the business. And I had worked for her at The Gap. So it was a great continuity for me. And it, it I really taught me how to grow a business in a very fiscally responsible way. Jenny Ming is known for being very 
cautious on spend. So we never put money against anything. We put people or people against anything until it proved itself to be a money maker, and then we'd fund it. And that stays with me today. So at Boston Proper, we're very scrappy, but I'm scrappy because I learned from one of the best scrappy merchants out there who knew how to balance that. How, when do you start putting the money in? When do you start feeding, right? Feeding the monkey, feeding the gorilla versus, you know, letting things happen. And, and you can't, you can't, basically my learning was don't fund it until it, it can fund itself. <laughs> That's the definite learn. Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imparity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about most. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend, and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Imparity, the platform for customer data. Learn more at Imparity.com. All right, so let's talk about Boston Proper. All right, I gave a little bit of uh, of an overview at the beginning, but tell us about uh, the business. Um, we'll go back to when you first got there. But what what's the uh, you know kind of the elevator pitch for Boston Proper? Right now, I believe what's happening in the world is that women, as they age, you know, fifty is different than it was back then. Sixty is different. Forty is different. And I feel like women in in the age group of forty plus. They have different requirements now and and they want they want to have a connection with their brand and they're looking for things like consistency, reliability, but in the fashion zone and a brand that they feel is right for them. And if you can get them into the brand, they'll stick with you over time, but you still have to kind of keep feeding that cycle right at the top of the funnel, bringing in new customers as they they come into your brand and, and then dealing with them as they go. And I think one of the great things about Boston Proper is our customer hasn't aged. We've been able over the, the past 15 years to balance it out. So she's still that same, that same 50-year-old, 55-year-old median customer is still that same one. So unlike some other people who've their customer aged with them and they weren't bringing in enough to keep that median, we've been able to do that. And I, it's, and it's, it's so remarkable to be able to do that and to hold that balance with your customer. 15 years is a long time to be in a fashion business. And I don't mean that, I, I mean that in the, in a positive way, a lot of fashion people just don't last for 15 years. Either they get burnt out or somebody burns them out. How have you stayed for so long? Well, when I mentioned earlier, my, my I look at my phase at Boston Proper almost in three segments. The first segment was when I came. It was a family-owned company, a strong culture. Michael Tiernan was like, it was the bomb. It was so great to leave a very you know, red tape, bureaucratic, you know, the last three years at the Gap, three CEOs, three brand presidents, you know, Old Navy had three different product strategies during those three years. It was a little chaotic. And to come to a brand that had a very focused customer was just new for me and exciting. And it seemed like, wow, when you can do this, you can't fail, but you you always can fail. But knowing that who your customer was, was big. And the, the culture of this family organization was great. And them embracing me coming in with ideas, right? A little more process, a little more calendarizing, some KPIs we should be tracking and embracing me and what I was doing. It was, a, it was just great. My first, my first couple of years were so amazing. 
And then Michael decided he wanted to sell the company. And so I got to learn that whole process, right, of putting a book together, going on the road, selling the company, meeting with strategic partners, meeting with private equity people, and, and really seeing, you know, what your brand is worth. Um, amazing opportunity. I never in my life thought I was going to be able to go down that path. <laughs> I've, I've done it already now twice. I'm probably going to be doing it another, at least another third time uh, in my career. So that was all new and exciting for me. So again, I didn't come in and I wasn't doing the same thing all the time. Like I kind of had this, like a, the halo of the, the honeymoon. And then it was like, we're going to sell the company. And then at the end, we were either going to go strategic or we were going to go private equity. Michael chose to go strategic. We sold the company to Chico's. And that to me was my part two of Boston proper because it was completely different now. I'm with a public company. I'm I'm not a CEO anymore. I'm a brand president. I'm reporting into a very corporate structure, very much like the gap was centralized HR, centralized warehouse, centralized customer stuff. And so while I had the background, I had to adjust. And it was a big adjustment for my organization because we're small and scrappy. We make decisions in the hallway. Like there was a really big change and a cultural change that I would say as I look back, I probably didn't do enough to keep our culture intact while we were getting kind of sucked up into the, the bureaucracy at Chico's. Um, needless to say, it didn't work. Um, four years later, they we, we made a mutual decision three and a half years later, the middle of 2015, that we were going to sell the company back to private equity. A challenge for me, because when I sold the company the first time, Every KPI was positive and and growing, and now we are we were we were doing way less. Uh, we were losing money. Customer file had shrunk for a lot of reasons, but I was able to pinpoint everything that was wrong. I had statistics that showed why we felt it was wrong. So it wasn't like the brand wasn't relevant anymore. We we lost sight of the customer. We were sourcing out of the Chico sourcing structure versus our previous sourcing structure. When we went to Chico's. How we got names was through, you know, co-mailing and buying and selling lists. And Victoria's Secret stopped sharing their lists with us when we went to Chico's because of Soma. So there were just so many things that happened to the brand. And then the expense structure of Chico's, right? Like there, there's so many stories around that. But we had our pickers and packers and we in the corporation would go on the microphone and be like, all right, guys, we got a big wave coming through. I need seven merchants downstairs to start picking and packing that you had to do it. Like I was a packer. I know how to pack. I wasn't good at picking, but I was good at packing. So we went from that to like an automated thing and the arms picked the stuff. And it was just too expensive for what we were and where we were in our life cycle. So the decision to split, I think was very, both sides wanted to do it and we were able to amicably do it. Um, and I really, what I did was I went back to the strategic partner that was going to buy us and said, Hey, you can get us at a discount. now." <laughs> Um, and so that ended up working, right? So so phase two of Boston Proper was done. Phase three started with us being with Brentwood Associates. At the time they had us, they had Soft Surroundings, Jay McLaughlin, and Sundance. A lot of similar companies. And Soft Surroundings really partnered with us at the time to give us the back of the house until we built it back up ourselves. We had no accounts payable, no accounts receivable, no warehouse, no web platform, you know, like all of it, nothing. So they partnered with us and, and helped us as we went on our journey the first couple of years. The good news was, was we were profitable one, the same year, 
We sold in 2015, losing a ton of money. And in 2016, we were profitable. So the good news for me, and I think my integrity was the things I said were wrong, we were able to fix being independent and it worked. So again, you know, you always want, if you're going out and you're saying something and it actually happens, you want to, that's a, that's a good, strong plus for you with your, with your private equity partners. I grew up in the catalog space. That's how I knew um, of Boston proper. Uh, we would exchange names and rent names and, and all. You talked about it before, kind of migrating from a catalog business into a digital business. People were talking about for years, geez, the catalog industry is going away. Um, I never really felt that it was going to go away. It certainly changed a lot. But paper, I would imagine, still plays a role in your marketing today, right? Absolutely. I, you know, when I joined Boston Proper and probably up until, wow, I would say up until like 2019, at least 90% of our advertising budget was going against the creative and the catalog costs. And what we've been able to do over time is we get it down take it down slowly as we built up digital. Cause again, this is the whole, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You've gotta, you've gotta find that right balance of letting go of the catalog and building up your digital. And it's taken us a couple of years, but we're now, we now spend more on digital marketing than we do on, on the catalog. And that's monumental for us, especially as we look at other potential investors to show that we've made that transformation, not only, you know, on, on paper with where we're spending the money, but where our sales are coming from. You can, you can obviously track it back and match back that your digital is actually working and you're acquiring customers and you're, and you're using your digital to, to support the customers that you have that are active as well. That's great. Cause there, you know, the long had been a debate in the catalog companies that they couldn't acquire customers uh, with the same lifetime value or at the same cost uh, through digital as they could uh, through the catalog. And seemingly you you have figured out, you know, at least for your brand, how to do that. So that's uh, th that's fantastic. You made a comment early at the beginning. I said I was going to come back to Omnichannel. You, you don't have any stores today? We don't. When we sold the company with Chico's, we grew to 19 stores. In the transaction with Brentwood, we closed all of the stores to just stay focused on catalog and digital. You're a shopper. We talked about that before we went live here. How do you look at you know the retailers today that in fact have stores, they have a website, you know, and how they are treating you as a customer from an omni-channel perspective? I would say one of the most pivotal moments at Boston Proper was when we opened up our first store and we had clothing, like multiple sizes, right? Like not just a piece of every, like a single piece of the whole line. It was like, and we were like, we, we had clothes in a store hanging. Like it was incredible because we've never experienced that at Boston Proper before. So there was great joy in having this example of who we were and this this ability to connect with the customer live and this tell our story. And we used to have, I mean, I remember when we would open a store, there would be lines out the door waiting to come in. They'd start, if we were opening at five, they would start lining up at 12 o'clock noon just to get into the stores because we opened our stores in core Boston proper areas, right? We use the, the, the information, the data to say, go open up in Boca, go open up Co Coconut Grove, go open up here. So it was a it was a big deal for our customers to be able to look and feel and touch the clothes as well. So 
I, you know, one of my favorite things is helping somebody in a fitting room. Like, how can I help you build your wardrobe and your clothes? And we loved it. And, and the fact that the town center is like a block away from our offices, we would go there all the time to make sure um, things were happening the right way, the setups were right, but also that we were connecting with the customers and understanding them. The unique thing about the stores, at least the, the beginning stores and the concept of the stores was very much uh, singular sizes. So a, a size run of each style, you'd build her wardrobe with her and, and her closet because we didn't have fitting rooms. We had closets for her um, that that would, we, you know, we'd have an armoire and we'd be able to build her wardrobe in there. And then we would buy it all on what we called a, a tech console. We had a, a tech deck and then they would ship it from the DC the next day. So we didn't have some of those constraints I think a lot of stores have when you're trying to fill the stores with lots of inventory and back of the room inventory. It was an amazing model before it happened. I mean, we were in town center and there were times where the internet went down and we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? So that whole thing was an amazing experience for us. I would love to do it again. So getting back to the Omnichannel, do I think we need to get some pop-up stores? We need to have a presence. Yes. Um, but we have to do it sequentially when we can take it on and do it the right way. Because the downfall of the stores was really when like a it became like a chess game where Chico's needed a new space. So White House went into the Chico space and then we went into the White House space. But the White House space was three times too big for what we needed. And it was in a piece of the part of the mall where you didn't you know, they they were branded with recognition. They didn't need the traffic. We needed to be by the food court where everyone would could walk by us and say, who's Boston proper and go in and shop. So, you know, I, I think we learned a lot and we would do it very differently than we did the last time for sure. Well, uh, Town Center in uh, Boca Raton, one of my uh, happy places. Uh, we come to uh, Boca uh, frequently, so uh, hopefully we'll get an opportunity to meet up with you uh, one day. We are at the end of our show. I've got uh, seven questions. That went too fast. That went too fast? Well, we could do another show. We'll do a part two. How's that? Okay. Um, it's always nice when somebody says it went too fast because then they must have had a good time yeah uh sorry seven questions one word answer are you ready i'm ready okay a brand that you admire or that inspires you chrome hearts favorite app on your phone my social apps last website other than amazon that you shopped from i'm a big skims fan okay something that you're not good at but wish that you were patience <laughs> charitable organization that you're passionate about so we partner locally since i started with blooming with, with boston proper with the achievement center for children and families in delray beach and over the past 10 plus years we've raised over a million dollars for that charity so it's something we're proud of because we're giving back locally and we've also recently partnered up with dress for success because we also want to we wanted to have a national presence and be able to to work with Lucy nationally as well. So those are the two that we're focused on. That's wonderful. If you had one superpower, what would it be? I get shit done. Excuse my French, but I can really get a lot of stuff done very quickly. And if uh, last one other than family, what's your most prized possession? So my family is here. My daughter, her wife, I have an 18-month-old grandson, and we just bought a five-acre lot of land that we're going to build a family compound and all eventually move on 
and live together. It's so exciting for us. And it's, it is a prized possession that we're all super excited about creating this home for our family. Well, that's very nice. Good luck to you with uh, that. So uh, Cheryl, thank you very much for the time. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation and uh, um, I look forward to uh, heading down to Boca sometime in the near future and, and grabbing some coffee with you. Great. And I, I do, I can't wait to, to meet you in person. It's going to be really super exciting. Okay. Well, best of luck to you uh, for the holiday season. Thank you. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Cheryl Clark for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, many people think that the fashion business is all about designing a product silhouette, selecting the fabric, and having it manufactured. The fact is that fashion and retail are heavily dependent on math. You need to be able to understand setting your retail prices to generate the best gross margin possible, understanding how many pieces to buy, how to mark down without giving away the store, and everything else that comes with managing a P&L are critical to the fashion business. So if fashion is in your future, make sure you have some accounting, economics, and math classes to support you. Number two, being a part of selling a business or buying one is an incredible experience. You will realize how much you know about the business, and you will need to craft a growth story for the potential new owners. Once the company is sold, and if you're lucky enough to be a part of it going forward, You'll need to be able to navigate perhaps a new culture and some new goals, but it's all about a building experience for your career. And number three, Cheryl told a story of a role that she was offered that she initially turned down until someone set her straight. When companies come calling with promotions or even lateral moves that will allow you to learn more, you need to seriously consider it. Some companies won't come calling twice. But as in Cheryl's case, the interest to learn more about the end consumer and the desire to broaden her experiences and her boss convinced her to make the move. It became an important step in her career. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. 